0: Hi, I'm Claire Poyon, and you are listening to the Scene World podcast.
1: Hello, it's the Scene World podcast. Hi, and this is the news section with Dennis Karimani and Jörg Dröge because AJ is out of order, as you can see, and Dennis, well, volunteered to sit together with me in the news section. Before we talk to our 2 days guests, that was me alone, unfortunately, Dixon Wu, the guy that made Retro a thing in Hong Kong in 2015. We have some news. I have some news, um, but I don't have much news, just two news items. And the news item number one would be that the, that the originally exclusive game for the television Amico called Space Strikers is now called Graviators and will be released in quarter three 2022 via Steam for the PC. So, because there have been some discussion that the game should be released anywhere else, because it doesn't look like the Emeco will come through fruition right now. So at least one game will make the jump to the PC. And also there is a delay for the, real tri- for the real-time strategy game, Starship Trooper Terran Command, and that has been pushed forward to the June 16th and uh, it's playing in the movie universe who doesn't know the nineties movie Starship Troopers. And the last game for the PC that was a strategy game was actually in the nineties if I'm not mistaken. So finally. It will be happening on June 16th. That would be all for my news this time. And now let's jump to Hong Kong and learn about Dixon Wu and retro. See ya. Um, Today we have another interview for our podcast again, and this time we are covering retro in Hong Kong. And at this time is Dixon Wu. Hi, hello. Hello. Nice to meet you. Oh, thank yeah, you for having me. I'm, I'm glad that we finally talk. Yeah. Interestingly beforehand, we actually learned that you were not too far away from us at gamescom when the last games Gamescom was in the retro area. So yes, yes, yes. Uh, totally missed each other for some reason.
0: Yeah. So what well, Rene uh, was the one that brought us in and uh, we, we have a, a friend in Hong Kong called Morris and uh, he mm-hmm. used to be, he's originally from Germany and, but uh, technically he, he lived in Hong Kong for longer than I have. And uh, he was the one that connected with Renee, And uh, yeah, so we we were actually at Gamescom. We, we hosted the Tetris World Championship, the, the Germany stop in our booth. And uh, we even hosted a stop for uh, the Neo Geo World Tour, which is uh, a tournament for King of Fighters, 98 and also for 14 at the time. Yeah.
1: I've read, and I don't know if that is true, that. You are single-handedly responsible for having started the retro craze or retro hype in, in Hong Kong in, uh, 2015. So basically five years behind the other parts of the world.
0: I wouldn't say single-handedly. I think I'm the person that really made it into a regular thing. So there were actually Facebook groups on on. On facebook for local people to to exchange retro games and to discuss but there was really never an, an event for it and in 2015 it was a time where you know my my businesses were a bit uh, slightly more stable and those businesses have obviously nothing to do with games and so that's why i I've always tried to find an excuse to do something for the gaming scene. And, and so I started asking on a few of these local Facebook groups, I've just went on a few groups and asked, so were there any retro game related shows or expos or exhibitions of any sort? And most people were yeah, there was this small show in a certain shopping center and there was this small tournament in, in, in a private place somewhere there and And so there was really no regular event because, because you know how basically if you in Europe or in North America, for example, basically every town, every state or every little corner, basically they, they would have their own kind of retro game swap meet, retro game show. And so that was a very common thing. I studied abroad. I grew up in in Canada and travel around. So I, I go everywhere and I look for these kind of events. You look for game stores. I look for game, retro game related events. I look for arcades, barcades. And so I, I was just curious, why didn't anyone bring this into Hong Kong? And so most people's answers were like, well, you're going to fail if you do something like that. It's you're not making money. That's the problem. I think most people would focus on if you're going to make something like that, you're not going to be making enough for you to be sustainable. So in a way they were, they, they didn't say they don't want it, but they're thinking ahead of even me that you're going to you know, lose money. So that's why no one is doing it. Wow. And so that kind of, that, that was like a, a wake up call. So also, so that's why, because no one is making money and, and no one is making it into something, let's say commercial. And that's why. No one wants to do it so why don't i think of the opposite direction which is i'm not gonna make money anyways I'm, i i would even say how about if i just lose money and make one <laughs> time just just make one retro game expo happen in hong kong and just see what people think do people like it i i, I don't honestly don't feel like people are gonna be against it but yeah and so in 2015 with some time on hand with all these and encouragements and discouragements online. So I thought maybe I should just make one event and, and see from there. And so that was our first event. So we conveniently, I just named the retro.hk. So that would be our website and the, the name of our show for, for the time. Yeah. And, retro uh,
1: .hk Gaming Expo 2015, according to your homepage.
0: Yes. So 2015, I was very lucky because we actually, so I was friends with this investment person. So he he was like a senpai and Mm -hmm. I I really admired him because he actually, a lot of people didn't know. So there's this person called Calvin Wu and uh, he actually used to be Sega's COO. And he's actually from Hong Kong. And, And I've read about this guy and I was like, wow, like how come no one mentions that there was ever a SEGA COO that's from Hong Kong. And so I went to one of his talks and it wasn't about gaming. So I just went there to meet him. And so after after he gave us a talk and he walked off stage and I just stopped him. And I'm like, Hey, Mr. Wu, I really just wanted to meet you. I've heard of your stories in SEGA. And, and he's, he was like, wow, yeah, it's been a while. And no one ever really knows that. <laughs> It's almost my secret identity now. Wow.
1: Okay. Yeah. And, and
0: so, I, yeah. And I shook his hand, and we we became friends, and that's how we started talking. And of course, I, as a gamer, and as someone that that is deeply interested in gaming culture, I asked him a lot of things about Sega and what happened to the Dreamcast and all these things. But yeah, we became friends. And at the time he was actually helping save a company called HMV. I don't know if you've, you still remember that one. So HMV is a company that sells CDs and records, right? So
1: I have no idea. But yeah, okay. so, so,
0: so it's in the States they used to have it and in Europe in some places, but HMV is almost like one of the, the biggest stores for records and movies and DVDs. And he was trying to save it at the time. And uh, so I told him about this idea of making a Retro Game Expo and he was like, yeah, so yeah, I'll support it. I'll, I'll let you use HMV, our flagship store, which is our venue for the first event. And and he was very supportive. He basically, yeah, he, he just told me, yeah, just let me know how much you need to, to make, get th- get things going for you for the first time. And yeah, I'd be happy to sponsor it. And that's how I got the first gig. <laughs>
1: Wow. You are lucky you really got the C-O-O, the former C-O-O of, of Sega as your sponsor. That's
0: wonderful. Yeah. He's not working at Sega anymore, obviously. Yeah. So he was a, an expert in investment and uh, he, so he was actually, you could even say the owner of HMV at the time, one of the owners. So yeah, we were actually very lucky to have him support the venue because in in Hong Kong, it's always difficult to find a venue, just because of how expensive the real estate is. Right? Yeah. So that kind of kept you know, made made the thing roll, and we got the wheel rolling. And hmm. after that, we started meeting people. Of course, at the at, at our first event, there were people that contacted us, and one of them was Morris, the fellow German, and he was actually the yeah one of the first ones that have contacted me when I posted online and said, I want to make Hong Kong's first proper retro gaming expo. And he contacted me. He's like, Hey, can I get a, maybe get a booth at at your event? And I have some games that I want to share and sell. And, and of course I was, I said, yes, that's great because that's why we have these retro game shows. We're, we're always looking for something to buy. Obviously I'm sure you are too. And I'm, Yeah, I'm yeah, and I'm always looking for people to, to meet because we're not just gamers. Retro gamers are a very different, unique spe- uh, species yeah, of yeah. gamers. We're, we love games, but we're not just going to be buying a game like GT7, for example, that came out and there's really just one or two versions. We're always looking for a certain old game and yeah, we're looking for certainly. a different condition of that game. And once we have that one that we're satisfied of the condition, we start looking for a different country's version or a different region's version. and And so that's why I, I think it's especially important for us retro gamers to be reaching out to each other because there's gonna be things that you want that you are looking for that has that that there's plenty in Hong Kong or, or that there's right. plenty. In-
1: yeah, for, for example, when I wanted a Dandy from uh, Russia, which mm-hmm. is basically a Famicom clone, but for the Paul region, because it was made in China, mm-hmm. and back in the day uh, most CRT TVs only had Ccam, so the mm-hmm. Russians would only play it in black and white. Because mm-hmm. the old TV sets couldn't handle the signal, so it's yeah. uh, ab- absolutely weird to have a Famicom pinout, but the games are basically running on the Paul machine, which means yes. that some games like Aladdin always crash because they're this well the. Paul version on a Famicom pinout cartridge is pretty Mm -hmm. hard to find. I guess it's a similar, it's a similar in Hong Kong that you have special version of consoles, for example, that didn't come out anywhere else. And I remember you told me before this interview that there's actually this specialty um, about Hong Kong that the Famicom and the NAS were both officially released side on side in Hong Kong.
0: Yes, I honestly don't know any other regions or, or countries that that has that because it's weird, right? Because in the States or in Europe, you guys had the NES. And of course, in Japan, they had the Famicom and then they, they would export it. So in mm. Hong Kong or other regions, they would have legal parallel imports of the Japanese version of Famicom. But Hong Kong actually had two different companies that became the official distributor of Nintendo products. And so one of them has the right for the NES and the other one has the right for the Famicom. And so we actually have our own version of of an official release of the NES and the Famicom around the same period of time, which is very weird because uh, we actually have a, a special package for it too. So on the box, it said Hong Kong version. On the NES, where the cartridge goes on, on, the flap, it says Hong Kong version. And, and the Famicom one also has Hong Kong version on the box and also on uh, the front where the metal stripe is. So yeah, we actually have an official version of that. And it's not just the parallel import. Of course, you can import the Famicom to the U.S., for example, mm. but the U.S. would never have an official u s. Famicom version sold in Walmart, for example, right? Mm. But Hong Kong has that, which is weird, and which is weird in a good way, because when a lot of people they they come to Hong Kong and they ask me, so what is something that I could get in Hong Kong that I would love to collect? And then I told them about this story, and they were but well, most of them are find it quite fascinating. So why is there such a, a strange business decision and Hong Kong is such a small dot on the map. It's not even a country at the time. I mean, it's never been a country, but it's not even a country. So how could Hong Kong actually have both official versions exist at one time?
1: So how did they resolve that in terms of TV standard and electricity synchronization? At the time they were both how.
0: Ah. And the uh, Hong Kong being a British colony, of course, we followed the UK standard. So power and uh, the TV signal, they're all following the UK standard. So they're power. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, so,
1: so it's, it's basically uh, t- between 210 and 240 um, yeah. volts and um, yeah. 50 hearts, just like yeah. in Great Britain, yeah. which is super interesting because even there between the different regions of voltage. Even there is a difference. For example, when in Germany we had 220 volts, Britain had 240. Mm -hmm. That means the, the diskette drives or other electronics would wear out faster because Mm -hmm. there was more strain on the electronics. So that means that your Pharmicon is basically like a Paul version of the Pharmicon, not an NTSC version as the original Pharmicon in Japan. Yes. So it's basically, the same as the Dendi in Russia, which is also a point.
0: You could say that. Yeah. So it's okay. So having said that, so we have the official version, of course, that doesn't stop the importers and shops to import directly from Japan also. Wow. So We have, so then I, I start to think, I start thinking about why this is happening. And of course, everything made sense because Hong Kong was a port. Right. So Hong Kong is basically an exchange port, like a, a, a middle point to anywhere. So we had a lot of different versions, different regions of things that passed by Hong Kong. And and Hong Kong is used as a free port to to basically export things to China, to, to any other regions. So now oh. uh, it makes sense that all these things would just come in and out. And that's what is so interesting about Hong Kong, because We don't get a certain version of things. We get everything exactly. So we Um. are the only place that when Breath of the Wild came out, for example. So you go to, you're in the US, for example, you walk into Toys R Us or whatever, Walmart, Target, Best Buy, there's only really just one version, right? (laughs) You get Breath of the Wild, the US version on Switch. And some people don't even know There's a, there's, that's called a US version. It's basically Breath of the Wild. I live in the US. I go breath of, uh, go get a version of Breath of the Wild. Yeah, (laughs)
1: exactly. The end
0: user, the
1: normal layman doesn't know all this, region thing and TV signal synchronization, which is still a thing in HDMI times. Yeah. People don't know that. So how do Hong Hong, Kong people not buy the wrong version of the game for their console, So they must be made aware
0: somehow. So, So, so that's why Hong Kong, I would say. Most gamers in Hong Kong, especially our generation, might know a, just a little bit more than just playing the game. Because at the time when when it was the Famicom era in Hong Kong, there was it was like a, a, a war zone of Famicom products, right? So there were clones, there were the official two versions, the, the you know, the NES and the Famicom, and there were parallel imports of NES from Europe from the US and there were parallel imports of uh, famicoms from Japan and later on it's it's even worse because there was the Famicom disk system which opens the doors to all easy piracy mm-hmm. and then you right. you get game shops that that basically just there's just a booth and then you just go and Give them a number and they'll just copy the game to you on a clone F- uh, Famicom disc. Right? So it opened all these possibilities and, and that's why going back to Breath of the Wild, right? So we in Hong Kong, when Breath of the Wild came out and you go into a local game store, you get probably six to seven versions and they're all there. And so as a gamer or as a customer, when we walk in, and we're used to this kind of mode mod, mode of buying games we are very aware that okay so i i want the u.s version because I, I i guarantee that it would have english but then of course the local version the hong kong version would also have chinese and english but then that's because it's the switch it basically follows what your setting is on the switch but then back in the days when it was the PlayStation 2 era, and mm. there were still region locks, for example. So you mm. have to be very aware. You buy a US game, you're going to have, have to have a USPS PlayStation 2, or you're going to have a modded one that plays everything, right?
1: Well, and, in, in the times of NES, people didn't know that you could just pinch one leg of the lockout chip yeah. And it would run everything, but then yeah. we still have the problem. I tried it out. There is Robocop three, which has mm. this famous music of Jeroen who is a mm. Dutch guy. So his music was done in Paul, mm. but the original release of Robocop was the American one. So okay. they, so in the game, they made an NTSC fix for the playing routine, mm. playing the tune at NTSC speed, so speeding mm-hmm. up the tune. But yes. when they made the European version, they didn't remove this NTSC fix, mm-hmm. which means despite the the music was done in the Netherlands and it would um, normally run on Paul machines fine, it runs too slow because they didn't think about fixing yes. The uh, well, removing the NTSC fix for the music when when doing the American, the European version. But what they fixed is the sync of the graphics and the scrolling. That means when you try to play the NTSC version on a Paul NES, then you have the correct speed of the music, but the game would crash as the level (laughs) scrolls. Yes. So that means if you don't pay attention to those different differences as a Hong Kong gamer, you would basically buy a game that would simply crash on your NES or on your Super Nintendo or whatever, yeah, and, and because it was never fixed to run on your system from the yeah. synchronization with the power outlet and TV signal.
0: Yeah, so exactly. So the regional challenges from the hardware, and yeah. and that makes it, makes every country or every city's gaming memories very unique because hong kong would would, we would probably be talking about the same game we're we're all gonna be talking about we played super mario brothers we We played Double Dragon on the Famicom, but then everyone would have a very different memory of how we played it. In Hong Kong, for example, piracy was still a huge problem at the time. So we would have 101 or or 50 Mm -hmm. in one cartridges. There are people that grew up with those and they would never really think about what an original game is. I just loved the game and I just played it and we played it on a 50 in one cartridge. I've actually met people in Hong Kong that doesn't even know that Famicom cartridges had boxes. You know, because they <laughs> wow. just grew up. Yeah, they, they just grew up with buying a cartridge. And sometimes wow. they just don't understand. They, they probably have never, you know, played an, an original one because at the time it was quite expensive. So I, I still remember I, <clears throat> at the time I, my dad bought me a, a, a copy of Ninja Gaiden 2. and And he told me it was as expensive the first day it came out it was as expensive as buying a brand new famicom (laughs) wow so uh, i'm guessing it was around the range of let's say 200 or maybe 250 us dollars for an original game Mm. so so you could and, and you would then understand why as parents when they had a cheaper option That looked like financially that would look like it made more sense, right? Because you're getting one game for 200 or 300 US dollars, which the extra is really just the packaging and and the manuals, which they might think we're going to throw away anyways, but of course, how wrong is that because Now you understand that is the part that's worth the most, (laughs)
1: People didn't know that. People didn't know that.
0: Yeah. So I joke, I always jokingly said, we actually threw away the most expensive part of the game. It's not even the game itself.
1: Exactly. (laughs) Everybody did that. Yes. Yeah. When
0: when we're buying these brand new graded games or when we're buying these really expensive retro games, we're basically paying for the nice carton box. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs)
1: Yeah,
0: Yeah. And, and so parents made a lot of them they were the ones that decided you know what to buy right so mm. of course it made sense that i'm gonna buy a device like the famicom this system that would provide my my children with a cheaper option which the parent is paying for for cheaper copied games and copied 50 in one cartridges sounds very nice because there's 50 games in there when i bought it for the children they might not they wouldn't have to bug me to buy another game <laughs> <laughs> for another few months because yeah, they
1: sh- uh, they can just go on the schoolyard and swap the games with their with their classmates because they also yeah. have a Famicom disk system and they yeah. would copy their games
0: somehow in in Hong Kong back in the days when in in the Famicom disk era and of course the Super Nintendo era was the worst for piracy because the rest of the world didn't even know that there was a floppy disk device you could plug into a a super nintendo and you could actually be playing games like the famicom disc system that really just existed in a few regions in asia
1: oh oh, they had a disc system for the super nintendo too.
0: yeah so that was an an official device called the the game doctor there's different names of them so it's basically a, a whole device that you plug onto the the cartridge slot and it's like a disc a uh, floppy disk drive, and mm. uh, it's built in with the ability to play games from a floppy disk. So for example, a Nintendo game would be one to four floppy disk, And, and you also have like these cheat functions in that device. So you so could- So like do, a game genie and stuff. Yes, you could say that. So it's a game genie device, <laughs> but then everyone bought it because of piracy. <laughs>
1: Wow, I didn't know that. I only knew the only thing that swapped over here was the satellite system for the sNES. That is something yes. we know we heard of just because, oh, is in, the reason, mm-hmm. because in the reason because in the recent five years, a lot of people were coming for preser- uh, preserving satellite system versions of f zero yes. and stuff. So I never knew about a this system for the Super Nintendo.
0: Yes. So again, that's not official and that's why you've probably never heard of it, but as un- unbelievable as this sounds, back in the days, I, I know that I would say most people that has a Super Nintendo at home would have that device. So
1: uh, it's not, not an official Nintendo product?
0: No, it's not an official program. <gasps> ah,
1: okay. Okay.
0: Yeah. So it's unofficial. they usually go by the name game doctor, or, or there's of course, clones of that device that has different names too, but I think
1: I heard about that once in a, yeah. in a
0: dark corner of my mind. Yeah. So again, going back to the point where I said most regions or most countries or cities would have their own unique memories of gaming because in wow. Hong Kong, that was part of the memory you. And and it was crazy, it was like the Wild West for piracy because you didn't even have to go to a game store to get games. At the time, I, I still remember in junior high, people were still playing Super Nintendo and you could actually go to a stationery store and, and they would give you a, a, a catalog that is basically just stapled papers. And it would be a list of all the games on Super Nintendo with the names. So the English name and then a Chinese roughly translated name, and uh, you would pay a stationery store. And uh, if you brought your own floppy disk, it would be cheaper. If you wanted floppy disk from them, it would take like 10 minutes. So you go pay and then you come back in 10 minutes and they give you one to four floppy disks, depending on what game you wanted. And uh, yeah, and so it was so common at one point that even stores that didn't sell games, stationary stores, or I've seen crazier ones, like stores that sold textbooks for for students, have a a, a booth that gave that kind of service because they know that the customers are students anyways. They're gonna be coming to buy textbooks, but then they would want games too. So it, it was at a point where we don't even call it buying games anymore. We would just basically call it, we're gonna go and have a game duped copied to us so,
1: so, it's, so like it's a it's, station <laughs> so so they basically got a rom damper to to
0: dump the cartridges and put the rom so, files so, on disk kind of so what happened was they so you would buy a set of uh, devices and then you're going to be using that to to make money so that would be like your business so what's included in that set is a cd rom and then all the Super Nintendo games would be on four to five CDs back in the days. So that's like the whole complete, you know, collection of NES games up to that point. SNES uh, or Super NES? Super NES. Super NES, okay. Yeah, NES would be around the same kind of format, but at least the the the, Fam- the Famicom this system was official. But then the game doctor wasn't even official, so they used oh normal PC floppy disk, and uh, so yeah so the set of games came on a few CDs and then they had a, a, a CD-ROM drive so you come as a customer you tell them I want a certain number of uh, Famicom mm-hmm. games and you write down the number on a post-it and you give it to them and they will copy it to the floppy disk and you take it home and play it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> wow. So no, it's basically ROM files. ROM, cartridge yes, basic, yeah,
0: exactly. They're basically ROM files, but it's, yeah, it's part of our culture. Wow. It's not part of the culture that we are proud of. Of course, personally, <laughs> I, I am honestly, of course, against piracy. But then if you look back at gaming back in the days as a culture, then you can't really blame them. It's just like MP3s also help your song or music culture spread. <laughs> yeah it's, it's the same thing it's bad but that would also help hong kong as a city grow its a uh, fundamental interest for gaming and and that's how most people here are they're very accepting for gaming and, and it's always been part of our lives and as i said most of them are quite aware of things that normal people, normal gamers in other countries aren't, like region locks or different versions and yeah. what, what happens if you put a PAL game in an NTSC system, things like that. Quite interesting. <laughs> yeah, but which, is, uh, which is interesting
1: because based on my example with RoboCop 3, companies didn't care if the game was playing the music in the correct speed. <laughs> no, of course.
0: Of course. I mean, it's, it's just a business for them, you know, and... <laughs> And to be but to be fair, I'm pretty sure what they're thinking is, you've never heard of the original. So if it's slowed down or speed up, then how can you tell? It's not yeah. like a song that everyone knows. If it was a song that's very popular in the world, then yes, of course, then, then people are going to complain. But if it's a, a brand new song, for example, how are you going to tell? <laughs> Ah,
1: right. it's so bad because in comparison, original games were so expensive yeah. and the publishers and even the the develop but development studios didn't really care. So basically you were spending money for crap. <laughs> <laughs> I mean it really is this way. We hired this European composer, we fixed it for America and Japan because mm. That's the same region, and that is where we released the game first. And Mm -hmm. the original region where the tune was made in is like third party. We don't care if Europeans listen directly or not.
0: So so for the players, I think it was okay at the time because they just really enjoyed being able to play the game, right? Of course, now now at this age when we look back to things that were done wrong and of course we would as as almost like a an academic angle exactly. then a lot of the, a lot of these exactly. things are wrong but if you <sighs> just think about how in in childhood when most people had these games they were happy like they they didn't really care yeah. too so that i think that was also one of the problems and, not problem, but why these publishers or companies won't bother to even fix them because people were just happy to have whatever they have. (laughs)
1: Of course, we don't don't want to complain about everybody. There are some few exceptions. For example, I got a modified uh, Mega Drive that I can switch between European, American and Japanese and Batman, for example, is one of such games you can switch and the game instantly on the fly fixes the graphic timing, the music mm-hmm. as as soon as you switch to another region, instantly. Yeah. Wow. They really cared about that.
0: But yeah. <laughs> if there wasn't modding, right? And and if there wasn't the piracy bootleg scene, then we would have never really found out about these things. Because a, a lot of things that we learn about in the past are, are from ROM files or, or even how to write an emulator, for example, how certain sounds are made. And that's why, of course, we are all against piracy because these really hurt the game company and developers. But in a way, I think these things also help us, people like us that want to not just play games, but we want to look at it deeper in a way that it is an art form, it is culture. These things really help. And that's why in Hong Kong, in class, for example, if I talk about these things, then some students would misunderstand. They might think, so are you supporting piracy? Is that what you're trying to say? And I'm like, no, I'm just saying you have to admit. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. You have to admit that this has happened. You can't just delete history and say, okay, this You know, piracy never happened in Hong Kong and we always played originals. That's not what happened. So that means preservation is made difficult for you in in two
1: ways, because for once, many people would like to forget about those, those copy stations and Mm. those disk systems that would pirate games. On the other hand, you also have the problem that the original games really didn't sell well in the original packaging, which means even they are hard to get nowadays. So you have a huge gap of things from the past.
0: Yes, you're you're absolutely right. We have a lot of challenge and and I wouldn't say these are unique to Hong Kong. So for example, when things are rarer and things are are getting thrown away, it's harder to find. I think it is That's universal. It's not like you can just go to the U.S. or go to uh, Germany and find a a, a sealed version of Contra, for example. It's not going to happen. I I think our unique problem is that, as you said, we have people that are against preserving certain history because that's the not so good part. For me, I think preservation in itself means that you have to preserve as much as you can. So it's not like games that you like, you're going to preserve it. Things like crappy games or garbage games, the games that we didn't like, we're not going to preserve. That's not going to work. So that's one thing. Agreeing on what to preserve, of course, is is a, a big topic because there's just, as I said, Hong Kong is a free port. So there's so much that passes through here, which is good because There might be something that's from germany that passed by here that (laughs) someone has There, there might be things that are of course there's a lot of things that's from japan there's a lot of things that's from the us and europe so we get sources from everywhere which is good in a way because it's easier for us to find things the real challenge i think is first of all i've mentioned this a few times real estate the space in hong kong is is the biggest bad cycle for a game collector because people can't actually keep these things at home, because their homes are very small uh, compared to in Europe or in North America, our, our flats or our, our apartments are tiny. That's a so good, good question. I have 60, sixty square meter. How
1: much do you have currently?
0: So currently, I live in a eight hundred square feet flat. Uh-huh. So that's, 800 square feet is maybe eight eighty meters square, but 80. that's 80. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's quite a lot for Hong Kong. We're lucky. We h- worked hard for it, but if you, let's just say most people might not have that kind of space and we don't have children yet. Me and my wife is also a gamer so she would allow me to actually ah
1: you married the right person that's
0: yes exactly and and, (laughs) and you know that's why you would see that i have a (laughs) dedicated room for games but unfortunately a lot of my fellow retro gamers aren't that lucky their their wife would just think why are you keeping these junk crts at home and anyways so the bad cycle is that we have smaller flats or, or smaller houses and so most people will make decisions to throw away things regularly in, in a pretty fast cycle. But, so, but isn't
1: it nowadays more, at least here in Germany, that people rather put it on eBay than throwing it away because then you could
0: at least make some money with it. Yes, of course, if, it, if they were original games. Of course, but it, if I'm talking about things like CRT TVs, for example. So
1: it's just bad because they should be preserved because of exactly. light guns,
0: light guns, for example. Exactly. Light guns. Yeah. And of course, scan lines is important too, because games yeah. look very differently. True. Uh, even if True. you convert it to HDMI and you could. True.
1: Yeah, which is a whole new misconception because people always thought that the graphics were blocky and crap. No, they weren't because the technology wasn't advanced, so the game wouldn't look so bad back in the eighties, nineties. Yes, so just so that's the why, picture
0: wasn't as sharp. And that's exactly why we have to preserve these things because when we have a yearly retro game show, we when we're when we have the space, we're gonna put out as many stations as we can. So what what I I mean by stations... I saw your videos. Amazing, amazing. Thank you. Our team worked really hard. Yeah, so preserving the game itself is not the only thing we're doing for game preservation. And I think that's another misconception because you have to keep the whole environment of running that game. And we have to keep it in a way that it was how we played it. And so the next generation of students, for example, or game developers or or just younger people in the city can experience the same game that we played when we grew up with it. So the problem right now is that when CRTs are so big and they're not at the point where these are worth a lot just yet, if you told them any CRT is worth one thousand US dollars, then yes, people would keep them because they know that there's a value. But there was this huge gap in Hong Kong where these were garbage. Everyone wanted an LCD true,
1: TV. True. Right? 27, 2008 was where. 2010, yeah, that was the time where people were like, I need a better TV. Here's the same comparison. I'm living in a big city, but still, when, when two years ago, when the pandemic started, and in August, on a hot summer day, on in the middle of the night my crt TV would just smoke and I was I was um, calling up a repair business and they were like okay they were founded in 1995 exactly the age of the television and <laughs> when 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 I called the front desk she was like a crt from 95 is that one of those with those? Huge tubes. I'm like, yes, that's why it's called CRT, So yeah, no trade tube. That's yeah. exactly. And and they were like, yeah, we will do it just because it was a, just because it's a pandemic and and they need every business they can. And mm-hmm. that was the quickest repair I ever got on the same day they picked it up. They, they, they said, we opened it, we found the problem, we can return it to you tomorrow. That was wow. the fastest repair ever. But the biggest problem is finding businesses still willing to repair CRT TVs and still uh, having the knowledge. Uh, people here exactly. in Germany that knows how to repair those things, they are 70
0: or older. Exactly. The, the how do you handle team.
1: that in UK? Uh, in, uh, okay, sorry, so in, uh, in Hong Kong, in HK. Well,
0: Okay, so we have the same problem that we call them the seafoods, right? The masters to fix these old devices, CRT TVs are, are 70, 80 years old. There's no new parts. And again, going back to the expensive real estate. So every problem in Hong Kong is somehow related to the high rent and high land price, because how would a company fixing TVs? I'm not even talking about CRT TVs, right? Just let's say a company that fixes TVs, right? How would they be able to survive if the rent was so expensive? So the rent, the high rent is basically forcing Hong Kong people, right? Hong Kong business people to think you have to make the best out of this high rent. And you're not gonna be choosing uh, a game store, for example, you're not going to be choosing uh, a, a TV repair company. True. You're not going to be choosing something like an arcade. Mm. And that is exactly, that's a whole new topic, but mm. that is exactly why arcades, game centers are dying in Hong Kong. Just because the rent is just so high, it doesn't make sense. Mm. Right? So back when we go back to the high land prices here, then retro game in, in, in its form Everything in this ecosystem, right? The repair guys, uh, the service shops, uh, the shops that sells parts. None of it makes sense anymore. And no one has a big enough apartment. That's the problem. We don't have attics. Most people in Germany have a house or, or a huge apartment and they have attics. They have storage rooms. In the U S they have a garage, they have a basement. So it's like free space that you could keep basically what people would call junk constantly tell me you, yeah, can't, so, so, have, you, you know, can't have a girl in your
1: flat because she will <laughs> run away like well she's probably the wrong kind of girl it's, exactly
0: there, yeah people that come in here in your room or in my room that would go crazy they, they would just be so happy right <laughs> we're just looking for the right people and it's the same right. for for our, our society mm-hmm. and that's why we're always looking for the people with the right mind because we're the the ones that would you know, we we actually, there, there was a, a long period of time. We would just randomly drive in our city at night after work and just go look in junk to pick go, up and, and pick mm. up CRT TVs, right? How do you think we have a storage full of CRT TVs with enough to set up 100 or even exactly. at, at certain events, 200 systems mm. for people to come play for free exactly. at this point. As of today, right, if you wanted to pay for a CRT TV, like you're, if you just tell, told people, hey, I'm rich, I want 100 CRT TVs tomorrow delivered. I don't care how much it is. Just give me, name me a price. I'll pay for it. And that is not even possible anymore wow. because no, no one has that. Think about wow. it. How are they going to find it? Like, are you going to be lucky enough to find a store with right. with some old stock in, in the back? and
1: uh, new old stock. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly.
0: So, so you just can and And so that's why we, at some point, me and some of our, our committee members at night after work, we just drive around wow. and, and sometimes, hey, hey there's a, C- a CRT TV there. And uh, at first we were quite skeptical about what we do <laughs> because are we wasting too much time? If people are throwing it away, yeah. it's probably not working. Yeah. So that's why they throw it away. And no, and then having done that for so many times now, we have proven that if you find a CRT TV in the junk, and uh, usually what they do is they cut the cord, they cut the power cord because. Oh, it's
1: okay. But you can we can resolder that.
0: Exactly. So we resolder that and we reconnect it. And I would say nine times out of 10, they work perfectly. Yeah. And that tells you when people are throwing these things away, it's not because they're not functioning anymore. They because just they want, don't know the value. Mm-hmm. Yeah, or, or they just want a thinner TV, so they just upgrade it to an LCD or an OLED, wow. and then this is junk, so they just mm. throw it out there. And it hurts the environment too, by the way, because the old CRT TVs, if you just dump it into a like well, some people just dump it in farmland, and and wow. the, the, the mercury goes wow. onto the ground and makes the ground poisonous, and it's and it hurts the environment too. So. I mean, that yeah, so that's why we are the ones that are, you know, as some people would say crazy enough to go save these CRTs and, and thus there's this uh, hashtag online that says CRT rescue, right? So we're really going out and trying to rescue as much as we can, and, but the golden time to do that has passed already. So at this point, I would say maybe a year, two years before, we were still able to find some. Let's say we go on Facebook groups or on, on secondhand product app called Carousel. You could still find some people that didn't want it and you could go pick it up. But these two years, because the government uh, has canceled the analog signal for television channels. So they basically force everyone to upgrade to, to a, a newer TV that has built in digital tuners. So everyone basically threw these old TVs away, and now you just can't find them anymore. So Uh, now it's about repairing what you have. Well, exactly. But that's also a challenge because I'm actually quite surprised that you said you could just call up a company and they would (laughs) come and fix it. Because honestly, in Hong Kong, like we only... No, some individual. Well, fixing partly,
1: they, they, replace the net filter that's smoke. Okay. okay. That's a part you can find even in modern TVs because it's evening yeah. out the signal that's coming yeah. from the power outlet. Okay. That's yeah. easy. And, that, and I said, and there also the, the left speaker is broken. Can we replace it? No, I can't because mm. you can't get the original part. And mm. if I put in a non-original replacement, then the TV is losing its operation license. Mm-hmm. This, yeah. and this could cost me my business. Yeah. If somebody so it so. finds out that I put in an, of, an official that's not certified by German standards to put in your TV. So I had to find a friend that is not a threat of high voltage, mm. open mm. it and put in a second hand TV, I found on eBay in Hong Kong. I found a company that's still producing arcade machine speakers. Mm. And they also fit in my TV.
0: (laughs) Wow. Yeah, that's exactly what we're all doing. So we don't really just stay in our area when it comes to fix uh, things that are in our collection, we would go as far out as like yourself going, finding a store in Hong Kong. And again, that's why I think it's so important to build up a a network yeah. of, of friends that are just around and especially when in Hong Kong, or we're close to mainland China. So we could still mm-hmm. find a lot of parts that are, you know, unofficial, but it does the job, especially for our case, <laughs> Hong Kong, is you're not going to be able to find any businesses in Hong Kong. would help you fix a CRT. Like it's impossible.
1: But you have the advantage that you have the industry next to you that's still producing speakers for example. Yeah, Here in Germany we don't have speaker producing companies. Yeah
0: that's true. For for things like fixing a CRT or fixing an old PlayStation for example, Mm. these are all just individual contacts that we have to save it's almost like a rumor it it all starts from a rumor like you talk to people locally and they're like hey i've heard of this guy this old guy that has retired and he used to fix arcades and now he's he's retired and he's pretty well off he doesn't even work anymore but if you call them if if you called him and he if he had time he would still help you fix arcades and so it all starts from these rumors and then you Mm. just keep asking around and then you have these individual contacts of certain machines. So I have a contact list of this guy is is great at fixing PC engines and he has all the parts and there's this other old guy that, that is uh, an arcade CRT expert. And, and wow. so, okay. so you would have all these individual non-business contacts that are just individual names and you would collect. A, a list of these people, and when, whenever you would need help, you would know who to call. And of course, as a society in Hong Kong, I feel like we have the responsibility of telling people that, mm-hmm. hey, like there are some masters that are still here that could probably help. And so, when people reach out to us, when even if we don't know them, and and they ask certain of these questions or about repairs, we're we're gonna refer mm-hmm. it to them. So oh,
1: so that means living in Hong Kong you have the parts because you have the industries making them but you lack the people still repairing them because having the space to stock the spare parts and repairing mm-hmm. old TVs or TVs in general is too expensive because of well, the rent I the think that, that issue. is
0: most I think that's mostly true the labor cost is much higher than the part itself
1: because i thought if you live in hong kong and and china is just next to you it must be super easy to get spare parts you have to right. import it from hong kong so well, well, I mean, okay. you are so living in hong kong so
0: let's let's just say we i would say we are we have an advantage in getting parts mm. but it doesn't mean that everything has parts so, so it, it must be it, let's say I'm guessing compared to Germany, for example. Then yes, we have we probably have more access to parts. But in a CRT TV, for example, if it was the okay, so if it was like a blown cap, then yes, of course you could fix it. But it, what what if what if it was the the tube itself, right? Or what if it was the the gun?
1: Yeah, they are not produced gun.
0: anymore. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So there are things that are. Yes, for speakers, then if it fits, then it's fine because it's just a speaker. But then there's a lot of parts in a CRT, or if, if we're talking about arcades, for example, then there's a lot of parts that are irreplaceable. So yes, we have some advantage, but again, the problem is labor cost is so high. People are not willing to do these things. if they could use one hour to make money. It wouldn't be fixing your CRT. They might right. think about, I may maybe I can just go online and and sell some stocks or there's just do some investment or there's better way to
1: make money than repairing old retro hardware. Exactly. I totally and, and so
0: yeah. and so we we are at a point where I think most of of the the members, the core members in our so- society, are always sharing information about fixing things and repairing things, but there's just so much we can learn. Right. Because there's no one from us to learn from that's the problem.
1: But, uh, but actually there's a workaround for that. And Mm that's probably something you didn't think of yet. So let me give you some, some ideas. Okay. Um, There is one person, there's one person in America Mm -hmm. that is called the king of arcades and his name is Richie Knuckles and he is famous. As, and named king of the arcades because he not only repairs arcades, but he mm-hmm. restores them to look as brand new from the factory. Okay. So we had wow. him, I had him, we had him um, in the podcast, like we have you now. And we mm-hmm. asked him, so how do you fix this problem of finding people to, to repair CRTs? And he mm-hmm. said, I do it myself. And we asked, how did you learn it? Right well, now he's 55 or something. So okay. How did you learn it? He said like, I bought a set of DVDs. That is a repair course, how to fix CRTs.
0: Wow. How how so do you actually find that set of DVD?
1: You have to ask him. I can probably put you in touch with him. He's sure, very yeah. active on yeah. Facebook. I was sure. like, wow. So you, you didn't find anybody in your region to repair CRTs himself from the ground up
0: that's, just that's by great.
1: going through tutorial.
0: That's great, yeah. yeah. Okay. Any source of information like that, we treasure it because we there's just yeah. no one or no source for us to to learn. We obviously we have access to the full internet in Hong Kong, so being able to understand English, for example, al- already really helps because you could go to forums and like chat groups to ask about these things. Again, I think we we're probably like the only ones that are thinking about these things and. Most gamers or most people in Hong Kong, they they come to our events and they enjoy it and it's free, of course, but to be very honest, how many of these, you know, visitors would eventually convert themselves to, let's say, someone that's active as I am, as in volunteering to help this cause, it's Hmm. almost impossible.
1: But, but of course it makes sense. At some point when CRTs were still a thing, somebody made a set of training VHS cassettes, somebody yeah. else converted them to DVD. It makes yeah. sense if you think about it. There, there yeah. must have been materials in the 60s, 70s, 80s how yeah. people learned how to be a CRT technician and repair yeah. CRTs. Yeah, so you have to find somebody who preserved those VHS cassettes, converted them to DVDs and then provided it to the masses. So, so I see I not only have to put you in touch with Brazil, but also with, with my contacts in America. Please. Yeah, that's
0: that's the whole idea of having a community, right? And so every time I I talk to someone like yourself, and any time I I meet someone at game shows or events abroad overseas. I the first thing I tell them is if you ever need anything in Hong Kong or in Asia, just let me know because that's how we could actually do this as a group. The, the problem I, I,
1: is most people here in Germany are afraid of the two hundred twenty volts.
0: They are Mm. basically
1: afraid to die by touching anything, which of course is silly. If you know what you are doing, otherwise, TV repair people would die like flies. That of course didn't happen. So there must be a safe way.
0: You have to know what you're doing. Exactly.
1: So there must be a safe way to repair CRT TVs.
0: Yes, of course. So yeah, CRT TVs is just one of the things that that we're preserving, but obviously it's challenging because it takes up the most space sure. and uh, they're harder to find. And Hong Kong is a nightmare for collecting these things. As you may know, Hong yeah. Kong has very high humidity, right? Also, that, yeah, yeah. yeah,
1: just yesterday I saw on, I saw on AliExpress, a company that is producing PA, PSUs, power supply units for mm. PCs and they wrote mm. on it, not in tropical areas. <laughs> not for use in tropical areas. Yeah. And and I was like, okay, so they already printed on the device that you can't use it in certain areas yeah. that have a certain heat peak or whatever. So I guess it's
0: similar to that. Trop- yeah. We're not exactly tropical area, but I, I would say we're pretty damn near it. In, in summertime, we're, we're not as hot and as humid as for example, Singapore. Thailand, but we're very close to it. For our storage, sometimes we have to turn on the AC just to get rid of the humidity. And mm. so humidity is the worst enemy that you can have for arcade PCBs, for example, for yeah. for CRTs. And, and sometimes arcades, for example, you have to leave them on. Mm. That's they're, they're, they're meant to be used that way. So, so right. they're meant to be turned on for the whole day. people in Hong Kong, if they collect arcades, they would, sometimes they would avoid turning them on when it's humid and sometimes preheating them before it Mm. it becomes humid, things like that. And and so (coughs) it it really trains a a new class of collectors in Hong Kong where we are very, we know very good in, in a way, very precisely what we have to do to store our things. For example, <laughs> we put these, and I don't know if you've seen them. Like you, you, you put these. It's like a little piece of soap where you just randomly put in your storage to absorb humidity. Wow.
1: Okay. Yeah. We have those but, pearls.
0: Yeah. Which those you sometimes have
1: when when you pearl bags. Yeah, that you sometimes have when you buy something from China, they are yeah. enclosed to su- yeah. uh, to suck out the humidity in the package. Yeah. Yeah,
0: yeah. yeah, we have, the city has an ongoing problem of the lack of space mm. and then humidity. And so these are like the worst kind of, of things that oh. you would want as a game collector. and. and I think that's why our society as a non-profit society is trying to preserve it in one place in, as in one organization. So when we always tell people if you're planning to throw away something like a CRT or old games, then just contact us. Feel free to sell them on eBay, of course. But if you know that that they're not worth anything or if you just don't want to deal with it, At least you're not just throwing these very historical pieces in the junk.
1: Exactly, exactly my point. Now the question is, if I help you tracking down those trading videos for CRT TVs, do Mm. you have somebody that is like in their twenties, thirties who are willing to learn stuff from 40 years back?
0: I, we would, but it takes time. I wouldn't say that. myself or my organization are the only ones pushing for this kind of effort, but just the most known one. I'm really trying to stay humble because I know that there there are a lot of collectors in Hong Kong that are, that, that are much more knowledgeable than myself, but they're just hidden. It's a really Asian kind of trade or tradition where people don't want to show their stuff. Or, people mm-hmm. don't want to let others know what they have, because yeah they
1: think, same same as in Japan,
0: yeah, because exactly, because yeah. that that's like an Asian thing because you know i I was forced to be put in this position because I'm the founding person. So whenever <laughs> there's an interview locally or or even with you right now, then I am the representative. That's how I would see it. So i this is my job, right? i I, I would see it this way. But there are people that that wouldn't think that this is their responsibility. And if I'm showing off my stuff, it makes people think that, I'm really showing off. So I wouldn't want to share knowledge because you, oh. if you share too much, people will attack you on Facebook. And, ah, you know, it's, and it's actually
1: like not an Asian thing alone. If you, uh, if you watch, um, or listen to the episode we did before the last one with Wayne mm-hmm. Benjamin from Jamaica, from Jamaica, we were sitting mm-hmm. there for 10 minutes. And he was talking about how small Jamaica is and so on. And after 10, 15 minutes, he became, I don't want to spill the beans or be, or be showing off too much, but I'm the only one preserving retro and history in my country. And I'm like, yeah. that is the truth. Then let's talk about it. Don't hide it. Don't try to be modern if you are the only one in your small country doing that. So I would yeah. say the same to you. If that is, if that is what you do, then it's what you do. If you are the leading force, then you are the leading force in Uh, a way.
0: At least we're trying to be, we're, we're, we have not chosen to be in this position. I always say that I've mentioned this in many of the local interviews, probably the first time or second time that I've said this in English, but I wish that we weren't the only ones. When, when people ask me, like, oh, do you do you enjoy to be the, you know, the so-called pushing force and hmm. you enjoy to be always be, be called the first one or the only one? No. And and that is exactly why true, I would true. always start by saying, unfortunately, we are the only retro game expo. That is unfortunate. If you think about, I, I studied in Los Angeles, for example, if you if you think about a place like Los Angeles, they have a, a few, let's say, more than five retro game events or expos and and smaller swap meet events of course and in hong kong i think we could have one or two or three events the city would love it it doesn't have to be me honestly i would much rather have someone make an event and i could actually go as a visitor and enjoy it because every time we actually do an event with uh, we in terms of including our volunteers right including our core committee members we work our ass off and and we never honestly never get to fully enjoy the event because we're always standing there managing everything and and our volunteers
1: yeah
0: and our members are always like patrolling the venue just to see if Anyone needs help, or if they have any questions, or if someone just changed the channel on the CRT TV and, yeah. and they complain to you and hey, they hey, this is not working because yeah. they pressed the, the ch-
1: I, channel. I remember that at much. Gamescom, yeah, like that. At Gamescom, we have this 1084 CRTs, and mostly the front panel cover would be broken off. People constantly change brightness, yeah, volume, yeah. whatsoever. So, yeah. We yeah. A- I actually had to find somebody in Germany 3D printing those covers so we could make people stop from playing around with our CRTs yeah. on, on the booth. And, and-
0: And people are, and I don't blame them because people are just curious. And and you have to realize that a lot of these visitors have not ever seen a CRT. A a lot of these younger visitors, they've probably never seen one. Here's the thing
1: here's the thing it's not the younger ones
0: that are touching
1: and changing it. No, it's the adults. Like I know this from 40 years ago. Oh, Oh. a congenital brightness. (laughs) Like you are doing you you know you are you are damaging our presentation. Don't do it. But but the adults they have no no shame. They have no
0: we've encountered individuals (laughs) that are similar. And uh, sometimes they try to show it off to their children and wife. To, to Hey, like, hey I, I know what I'm doing. And then you know, I could change the color on this thing to make it brighter <laughs> and stuff exactly. like that.
1: Exactly, but, but please change it back afterwards.
0: They, and as I said, I don't blame them because even for adults, they have been, uh, they haven't been using a CRT for a while and it just makes them feel good to be actually seeing one and just messing around with the settings. For us, we have a cheaper, more ghetto idea, which is to just use a, uh, tape to cover uh, okay.
1: I'm, I'm I'm very picky, as you already noticed, with music and
0: games and stuff. I wanted
1: the proper solution. Yeah, so. we,
0: <laughs> we would love it too. It's just that we never had the, enough time and, of course, the funding to actually do that because, yeah, every time we have a show, we have 50, sometimes 200 of these setups. And you can imagine how painful it is when they're all different brands. Some of them needs a remote. I'm sure you have that kind of problem too. Yeah. You know, certain yeah. ones you need a remote to get to the settings, certain ones you, when they turn on, they don't stay on the AV channel. They, yeah. they sometimes have, you know, jumped to the setting screens. So when you're dealing with 50 to 200 of these CRTs, and we're not even talking about the console itself yet. Yeah. Right? True. So, so having true. an event that is four days, for example, that was our So our second year, we started to have four day events. And so turning them off and then the next day going there and turning them on Mm. already requires a lot of time because every time you turn it on, you have to make sure that everything is working. But yeah, uh, uh, unfortunately not every, we do know that a lot of people are very appreciative to the event because it's, it's free and they know that we spend the time to do it. But a lot of people, they don't realize how much effort is put in it and sometimes they would even make fun of CRTs or older consoles that we have rescued and they mm. would just make fun of you and say like, oh, I can't believe like these guys are using like these crap to make a show out of this. True. And, true. And like, yeah, yeah. like that, but there's always people that don't understand and we're not really working for these people. We just want people to come, not just to have fun, but to actually learn something, you know? To, to Here's learn the thing. about the history.
1: Here's the thing, if I put you in touch with Richard Knuckles and he could copy you those tutorials, video tutorials he has, mm-hmm. your challenge will be to find somebody who is not 70 and older to actually <laughs> willing
0: to go through the material, you yeah. learn it and put it to use. Yeah. Okay. So there's two things that we, I, in, on top of my head, we can already do. First is our committee members. So including myself, we have right now, eight core members, Mm. most of them are expats. They all, they're all natively, you know, speaking English or or they speak English very well. I thought that Um,
1: comes as being a Hong Kong person.
0: No, not everyone, but in our society, we, as, as I said, locals are sometimes very shy to come forward and help you. And so. A lot of these core members that we have are all mostly expats and and, and it's just that I I just feel like locals are not that it's not like they don't want to help you. It's just that they're too shy to come forward. And they when you have a show, they will come and attend it. But if you're asking for help. Sometimes mm. they might think, are you taking advantage on me? And it, it gets complicated, but anyways, okay. so we have eight. So, so is that means speaking mm-hmm. to me already goes against
1: your Asian tradition?
0: No. Okay. You got so used, to, fair, you got used so, to talk to foreigners. Okay. So to be fair, I spent a lot of time overseas. right? So okay. I grew up in, I grew up in Canada and I went okay. to college in Los Angeles. So. I I don't want to say I'm different, but I am, I love communicating to people. And I think the most importantly is I know that you're not thinking that I'm showing off. That's very important. No, I'm
1: just preserving. That is exactly why I gave you a list of countries we covered like Brazil, Venezuela, uh, Jamaica, because I wanted to know, I want you to know from the beginning what my goal is and that is. Getting to preserve the problems, the history, the preservation thing in Hong Kong that's going on right
0: now. I I really appreciate what you're doing. And and that's exactly why I'm so interested to knowing you because not a lot of people think in that way where, of course, you would go and meet other people in other countries, but not in a way that, that you're thinking to preserve not just the game itself, but also the the culture of every region which is great it, it's challenging too and you have to be you no know, you have to be thankful that someone actually came forward and start doing that which and, was and so,
1: you
0: <laughs> no no is, I'm talking it, about you okay I'm, I'm me talking okay about you right yeah. but i'm just saying that when someone like myself i would consider myself to be active right so whenever there's a school or or a company or a charity that's, that that Sends me an email and and invite me to to do a talk about game preservation. I, I am all for it because if there was one person in the audience that would appreciate what I say, then I would have maybe one more person that potentially can help the cause. That's all. That's why I, I'm that's why I, I'm teaching part time in in two universities. By the way, because I think it's all about passing. The torch, but at the same time, finding these people, just like how you asked, right? So, finding a 20, 30 year old that is willing to learn these things and also pass on the knowledge. So, that's the first thing, right? To actually find people like core members in our society to learn these things. Secondly, to translate that, those DVDs, to translate it or to even make just subtitles in Chinese, in traditional Chinese, for example. And so, Then we could share this information, not just in English, but then for those who are not as familiar or as good in -hmm. English, they could also be learning from that. And yeah, there's a lot of things that that's going on in our society that that we're trying to help not just preserve things, but then in, in a bigger picture,
1: I don't Uh, know if he kept them. I have to ask him, I will call Uh, him
0: later and ask him actually. Yeah. But uh, what I'm saying is preserving games is just so big of a topic. There's a few I'm very inspired. I'm deeply inspired by Joseph Redden. I don't know if you know this guy. No, no. Joseph is the president of the game preservation society in Japan and he's French.
1: Oh, yes. I heard his name. Yeah. He's one of, he is one of the people on my list. I want to talk to. Yeah. Yeah,
0: I I, I would gladly introduce him to you. Oh yeah. Yeah. that's So so Joseph is a person that I've heard of online. And uh, I think it was a few, a few years ago and NHK, which is the the Japanese uh, TV channel made a small documentary about his efforts in preserving games which is rare because he's a foreigner. And NHK <laughs> yeah. rarely does such a big featured documentary. But you have to understand a lot of that is, is outsourced to foreign agencies, for mm. example. So, for example, well, Joseph is one, one of the guys that you can speak to. And he speaks English, of course. And, and But I find it very interesting when I met him finally in person. I, there was one time I flew to Japan just to meet him. Because he is, you know, from France and he used to collect and preserve games in France. And he loved the games. He, he loved preserving games so much that he, mm-hmm. you know, found a job in Japan. And he basically just moved to Japan to, to continue his preservation work. And Awesome. Yeah, I've read about it. He has his own place, his house, and his house is where he lives and also where he puts his collection. And uh, he opens up the ground floor as a library for anyone that, that wants to just go in and read all these old PCs and Japanese like video game magazines. Like you can just book a time and they'll, and Mm -hmm. and he'll open up the ground floor for you to go in and and read them. He preserves all of them. And, uh, and that's one thing that, that I, I would say is the most important thing that I learned from him is preserving video games is not just about preserving video games. The first step is to preserve the magazines. That's what he taught me because that's where all the record is. So he made a good example, right? So for example, if a game was announced and it was in the magazines, but then it was canceled. So if you don't have the magazine, then how do you know of a game that's canceled? Because you could never find it in the market you would you would need to find the person who wrote the article and hope that he still remembers it yeah and so preserving the magazine itself is the first step because mm. the magazine would tell you what has been announced and what has been canceled
1: yeah that's the problem even if the author is still is still alive you wouldn't know what to ask because you didn't know it existed in the first place yeah ask what
0: you don't know existed Yeah. So that's why the magazines is the first step of game preservation, Mm. because at least you would. So again, so how do you actually find a master list of, for example, all the games that came out in Hong Kong? All the games that are from Hong Kong developers, for example, you won't be able to find it on Google. So it's not like you can just go on Google and type of games that are developed by Hong Kong people and you would magically have this list, it it doesn't exist. The government even doesn't even have it. So preserving magazines is also part of our main work. It's because Mm -hmm. we're trying to not only preserve the local literature of Mm. gaming, but we're trying to build as much as we can, build a complete checklist of what we really need to preserve. Yeah. So Joseph is one of those guys that you meet and then (laughs) you're like, wow, like I have never thought of these things and it's almost, I don't know anything about game preservation Mm. when you meet someone like that. So that means when we really want to
1: talk about those shop owners in Japan, we have to find somebody that isn't shy to, to talk on camera and bring our own Japanese translator.
0: Yeah. That that would be the most ideal because for them it's Uh easier to talk to a local. So if you. Right. Have someone... Well,
1: that, no, no, he's not local, he's Turkish.
0: I but. mean, like, in the local language, in a sense. <laughs> so it's it's easier for him to, for the shop owners to talk to someone that he feels comfortable in talking about, because he, they always think about how not to misinterpret themselves. Mm. So they're afraid that if they said something, then you're going to put it on the internet, and then maybe they're... Competitors would say like, oh, this guy's bragging or like very yeah. complicated things I like that I in, in the Asian culture, especially Japanese. They have, right. They, even for the Japanese language, they have different sets of words that are used for people that are at the same age or people that are older than me or younger than me. So I'm trying <laughs> to say that Chinese people are, are more flexible because we think, oh, it's okay. If he can pay more than yes, I can do this and I can add that. and. And do this and so we were are not sticking to any principle and that when translated into service it's great because as a customer like yourself can you do this yes can we do that yes oh that's great like chinese people are great like you just tell them to do it or even add a bit of tip they would do it but then if we use that flexibility and translate it into product design for example it doesn't work because japanese people are like okay i am super stubborn I have my (laughs) principles, I'm going to make this Sony phone the best looking phone. Like there is no, you know, there's no giving up on any detail. Whereas if you translate that flexibility of how us Chinese people do it, we're going to be like, oh, okay. So the customer wants it to be round. Sure. Yeah. Why not? He's the guy that's paying. Oh, okay. So the customer wants an extra button here. Yeah, sure. Uh, Why not? Like he's, yeah, he's the one paying for it. Then you end up with a a product that is what the customer wanted, but then customers never really know what they want. So what (laughs) I'm trying to say is Japanese people have a very strong, I would call it a craftsman kind of thinking. They're thinking of service, a meal, even a drink that is served to you as a craftsmanship. So this is something that they use their hands to make to you, even a Nintendo game. if you look at how games are made from Nintendo compared to a game like in made in Sony, for example, is very different. Nintendo has the traditional Japanese principles and thinking into it, and the yeah. stubborn. But then, if you look at how let's say Chinese people do things, it's. I'm not saying it's bad. I'm just saying it's good for business, but it's not not necessarily good for the product itself. And we don't have that craftsmanship. We don't believe in craftsmanship. And I'm saying generally, I'm a person that believes and honors craftsmanship that's why we are talking about fixing crts right because that's craftsmanship but the nowadays chinese people uh, their thinking is why should i fix this i'm just going to buy a new one i'm rich yeah. who cares yeah, yeah. Right. okay so, right. so if you really want that i'm going to throw it away for now and if you want i can always buy it back there's Which not, doesn't there's...
1: work for old old
0: things exactly Their thinking is, there's always things, I can always buy something back if I have money. And so we don't have that craftsmanship mindset, whereas if you compare to Japanese people, they fix things. They understand how to improve things. They think like a craftsman, but we think of we think more like a businessman. So going back from Japan to Hong Kong again, because you
1: got a bit sidetracked, um, yes. you said most of the people that work with you on preservation and so on are experts So people yes. from abroad. Yeah. What are you trying to do to get Hong Kong people, your country mates to change their behavior and step forwards? Well, from, um, from from, uh, talking at universities,
0: we are events in itself is a way to promote what we're doing. And I think in the past, we haven't made this into a point yet, because if you look back, we started in 2015, we're still young compared to a lot of different organizations in the world. So at first I would say we didn't really stress on the point about preserving and we want everyone to make an effort in preserving. And you could be volunteering for that. At first, I think it it is to make it into a fun, enjoyable event so that people will just come and know about us. And so in the last, let's say two to three events, we try to stress a bit more on the preservation aspect. We, we try to tell them more about why we are doing this culturally. And we t- we tell them like the effort of how, how much effort we put in preserving these CRTs and, and so far I would say it, it's working. At least there are people that sent us emails and, you know, tell us that they have things to donate to us and some select few would even ask, Hey, if there's an event next time, please tell me I'll, I'll come help. So it's slowly working and gaining traction, but I guess. It takes time for our name to, to be built up. And if it wasn't for the pandemic, I I would say we're there. Like we're at a point where people would see us regularly. At least they would be like, oh, so this is not like a one-time thing. It's not just this guy called Dixon that just wants to host a retro game event to for him to enjoy himself. At least I could see his effort yearly. At least there's one big flagship event every year. It takes time for people to to start trusting you as a society. But then of course the pandemic is definitely not helping. So in 2020, for example, that is the first time we never had a a retro game event. So we had no retro HK Gaming Expo in 2020. And last year with the few months of zero COVID cases, we were lucky to have one smaller event in a shopping mall. It's relatively smaller than the ones we did in a university. But people still came because they were hungry for an event like that. So it still drew a very big crowd. And, and so are people not interested in retro games or are people not interested in the topic of preservation? Definitely not. They are definitely interested is what I'm trying to say. But I think the next step is, of course, to for everyone to recover from the COVID and really tell them, like, what is the next step? for us to, for us to preserve. So we have things now, but we need to start sorting them out. Like we need to start digitizing the magazines. For example, we need to start potentially seeking for like other organizations help for space. Cause we're running out of space. We have a roughly 1000 square foot storage and it's slowly filling in, filling up Th- because that's of-
1: was, was my point. You also <laughs> have to after digitizing, you also have to preserve the magazines itself.
0: Yes. They're all in our storage. But Uh, the
1: problem is the degeneration of the paper itself.
0: Okay. So the paper, of course it is degrading, but then it's not, it's not at a point where it's not readable. So what I'm trying to say is we have to try to digitize them as soon as possible. Mm. And we're still very far away from having a complete collection. Uh, of, of all the magazines in Hong Kong, believe it or not, back in the days I'm talking about, let's say late nineties, early 2000, we had at a high point, we had like maybe 15 to 20 magazines weekly. So it was a big industry at the time. So people were, businesses were competing very fiercely to be the number one game magazine. So back in the days there were monthlies and then there were weeklies and so weeklies became the main thing. So at a point 15 to 20 weeklies per, per week of different brands. And then later on, fast forward to 2022, there's only one left because internet killed everything, the the Mm -hmm. internet, Facebook and YouTube. YouTube kills a lot of things because you not only don't need a strategy guide (laughs) anymore because someone is showing you exactly what to do and what to unlock. Long plays! Yeah, and long plays are are in a way very bad because when you have time to watch the whole long play, you don't even need to play the game anymore. True, true. Yeah, because, and, and, and I can understand it because people of our age, so I'm born in 82. Oh my God. Okay, perfect. <laughs> <Same age. laughs>
1: yeah.
0: so, so, so we're at the same age. We're, we're, we're around late 30s, 40s, and a lot of my friends, they're just too tired after work and, but they love still, they still love games. And so for games like Death Stranding or, or remakes of Resident Evil or games like Elden Ring, they find it enjoyable that they could just be lying on the couch like that <laughs> with a beer and just watching someone play for you. And so you could still be able to join the conversation and when you're asking me, Hey, did you play Elden Ring? And he's like, yeah, I like. At this first level, I see this and like past that bridge, I see that. And and, and it's just a n- new format of how people are enjoying games, but in a way it's hurting the game industry itself because you, you don't even have to play it. So YouTube yeah. and...
1: Less less revenue because the person watches this, not buying it himself and yeah. stuff. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And so game magazines in Hong Kong are, are completely dead for many years. And there's only one that's left and... That person is uh, basically like a freelance. He doesn't have an office. He just hires freelance at home. And and I I appreciate his effort because he's the only one that's still doing magazines in Hong Kong, like gaming. Wow.
1: That would be another person interesting to interview perhaps.
0: Yeah, I'm not sure if he speaks English, but yeah, I could ask, but I'm just, what I'm trying to say is preserving. Magazines is much harder than we think because in in the US, for example, Nintendo Power, right? Everyone subscribed to Nintendo Power, although it's worth a lot and it's getting rare because now people have thrown them away. But there is almost like a unity of books that you have to collect. But then again, in Hong Kong's case, it was like the Wild West. weekly, oh my god. Yeah, weekly, and then everyone could publish a gaming magazine at a point. It was so profitable that traditional newspaper would give out a free gaming magazine in their newspaper, just so you would buy their newspaper. So to preserve it is not like in the US where you have these bigger brands like Nintendo Power or like the Dreamcast magazine or whatever, and then you have a whole collection already. In Hong Kong, it was like it, it was chaotic. Some magazines went bankrupt after a few issues and, and no one kept those. But I remembered, I remember there were a few magazines that came out for three months and then they were just gone because comp- competition was just so fierce at the time. So wow. things like that. And And it's interesting because the more you try to preserve, the more you learn and you just talk to people locally and And they will tell you like, Hey, I remember there was this one magazine that came out just for one issue and it came for free with that one, but it never went into fruitation, things like that. And and it becomes like a a collection of stories, like a collective memory of things rather than preserving the actual product.
1: Wow. I see after we finish this interview, have a lot to do for you and try to put you in touch with people, helping you, you to preserve more. When I interviewed people in the past from other regions, they already got their, everything set
0: yeah. and everything
1: is set out. I see for you, you still have a lot of work ahead of you. Oh, you're of still course. in the but process. You you, you don't have things set up
0: totally yet. Yeah. It, wow. It's hard to do to have everything set up because the, the stuff is all thrown away already. And, and wow. Just, yeah. yeah. But anyways, I'm, I'm happy to offer any help that I can also, you know, if you need anything from Hong Kong or anything. Right from,
1: now I feel more
0: like I need to help you. To, that, to reach that, that's, certain great. Things. that's great. Yeah. No problem. Uh, In terms of finding things, let me know. It's it's much easier to find some things in Asia, right? Yeah, that's another mis. That's another common misunderstanding that we get a lot, because as a retro gamer, as a a guy that collects games and preserve games, most people would misunderstand that we don't play modern games. I don't know if you get that. Yeah,
1: I do, I do.
0: Yeah. I'm I'm actually planning on a new series on our
1: YouTube channel, perhaps. Mm. I'm thinking about making a series on delisted games. Oh, that's nice. There there are really very cool games that like Plur, one of the Mm. best racing games ever, like an arcade racer but with like Super Mario Kart. But it came at the time where the other two racers Mm. won the market share and they only sold 500,000 copies on all systems. So the Mm. game is very rare and there were only three copies left at Amazon Germany. And I was like, wow, you have to preserve something about this game because it's so rare. So even that, because what people don't understand, modern games nowadays or ten years ago, at some point will become rare. Like nowadays, you have retro PC groups. Yeah. Yeah. Like wow, now DOS PC gaming is retro. Windows ninety eight. PC gaming is retro.
0: Yeah. So there's, there's the it DOS becomes emulator retro as move forward. The thing about retro is there's always going to be retro because everything that's forward will become the past. Exactly. So exactly. Yeah. That's why I, I get that a lot because in interviews, they would always ask you, so does it mean you're, you don't play new games? Like you don't have <laughs> modern consoles at home? I'm like, no, like I'm not against it. I'm just saying that we have to pay more attention to the history. I have exactly. a PS5, okay? Like <laughs> I have I don't. A PS5, I have a I, Switch, but okay. Yeah, exactly. I have a Switch. I have a PS4, and I am a modern gamer too. Like these things are not what we're talking about today. Right? But I, right, I get that right. a lot. I get that a lot. Yeah, <laughs> but
1: people understood that. Uh, people think that we are stuck in the yeah. past. No, yeah, we yeah, are exactly. not stuck in the past.
0: Yeah. People it's think like, a- and and some people would think, oh, you probably. Can't afford the new things, and that's why you're playing like old games. And I'm Which like, is no. actually because... the
1: other around. The older exactly. stuff is more expensive now.
0: Exactly, because older <laughs> games are always more expensive. So if you think that we're trying to save money and that's why we're playing used games, and that's not true. And so these are some of the things that I have to debunk in some of the previous yeah. interviews because it's just a very stereo type kind of situation people right. think oh you're playing old games." anyways but it's, it's been great talking to you thank you very right. much
1: before we hang right. up where can people find about you there is retro yes. What what else you have
0: i think right now we're most active on facebook some people ask why not twitter because hong kong most people in hong kong still use uh, Facebook and not much of, not many of them actually has Twitter. And, and also considering the people that are around my age, like older, (laughs) I would call myself older now, (laughs) we people that come to our events, they tend to use Facebook more. So that's why we chose Facebook as our main, you know, communicating channel. So if Mm -hmm. you go on Facebook and search for retro.hk, then you'll find our page and we we update about our events of course, and we also update uh, about just any anything that's retro game related, artwork and you know, funny memes of retro games and things like that. So cool. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Let's keep in touch. And, yes, uh, certainly. Take care. Take you care. And let's keep in touch. Certainly. Good night. Uh, Goodbye. <laughs> good night.